If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Hello, glowworms, and welcome to the Vanity Project with me, Vanity Von Glow. Politics can be messy business, no doubt, and great demands can be made on our elected and appointed representatives in their various fields, which make their jobs quite difficult. Today's guest is the London Night Czar, Amy LeMay, charged with protecting and advocating for London's nighttime economy and workers. I don't envy those working in government, local and national, trying to make the country a better place. It can't be easy work. And the night czar's role has been somewhat contentious within my industry of bars and nightclubs. I say kudos to Amy for coming and chatting with me. We had a pleasant discussion about her work and about London, a city that we both love. It's slightly by accident that I find myself sitting down with politicians here on The Vanity Project. Those of you who have followed me for some time will know that as an artist I've felt uneasy about a social shift in attitudes towards self-expression in recent years. I suppose it's because of the intense polarisation, fragmentation and suspicion of one another which characterises some of the media, arts and online culture of the past five or six years that I want to have thoughtful, long-form conversations with people from various political backgrounds. I want to learn about our common ground. Drag at its best can put people at ease and show them not to take life so seriously and that we are all, in our essence, the same. We're people trying to live a good life. As regular listeners will know, I've chatted with MPs Don Butler and Jess Phillips on this podcast. I keep saying that we'll have guests from other political parties on, and we are doing just that in in coming weeks. We have an esteemed Baroness from the House of Lords joining me for your listening pleasure. And I'm trying to get the balance right with the guests, veering from entertainers like Lavoie and Christina Bianco to activists like Peters Krikant and Tatchell. But I've been criticised in recent weeks for interviewing Labour MP Jess Phillips who is deemed not progressive enough in some London circles. In fact, some critics have been contacting venues I perform in, recently trying to persuade them to cancel my shows. Mamma mia, here we go again. It's not, I think, for anything I've said, but it's, it's for talking to Jess Phillips. Jess Phillips told me in our interview that she believes there is a difference between sex and gender, and that while people can change their gender, they cannot change their sex. For platforming... An elected member of parliament and hearing this view, I am by some people ostracised. 
Now, I'm not too fussed about being ostracized. I care about people trying to lose me my work. That's my definition of cancel culture. Never mind that the fabulous Don Butler was here just a few months ago, breaking things down on this very podcast. Don Butler was, of course, from Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet, who these people usually love, despite taking a cavalier approach to this worker's rights. Never mind that we have Miss Amy LeMay on today, a woman not afraid to express her opinion that trans women are women, a sentiment also expressed by Lorraine fucking Kelly, who we had on this podcast too. No, it doesn't matter. To some people, I interviewed the centrist turf Jess Phillips, and some people think that should cost me my living. There are some people in the broader LGBT plus community who I think sometimes want to divide us into factions. I don't believe in that. I think it's sad because sometimes the people who felt the most isolated in their teenage years for being gay or lesbian or trans or just plain unusual seem to pick up the weapons of their own high school bullies. It seems like some people have an emotional need to marginalize others. The thing is, people are marginalized when they're seen as only one thing. Panty Bliss on this podcast was telling me how being seen as whole people and not just as gay men was important in changing attitudes in Ireland that led to the victorious equal marriage referendum. In my chat with Jess Phillips, she talked about her family, her work with women, her job as a parliamentarian, her aspirations in leadership. She was, as all of us are, many things at once. And I was speaking to a whole human being, not just a living avatar for an opinion you don't like. I'm not too bothered about being marginalised myself. I think life's experiences, being adopted, being an effeminate gay man, all of these things have given me a unique, sometimes marginal perspective. And I wouldn't want to give that up. I'm a drag queen. Being marginal is my superpower. That said, there is a difference between being marginalised and being isolated. Cancellation serves to make people social pariahs, to cost them financially and emotionally, to run them out of town, in some cases to destroy them entirely. That's why when I talk about cancellation, I talk about people losing their work, being unable to pay their rent, having their lives thrown into chaos. I've dealt with damage to my career as an entertainer before, almost exactly four years ago, but I've never explicitly said about it what I'm going to say now. Being cancelled in 2018 was, with the exception of the personal traumas of an early childhood in foster care, the most difficult thing I have faced in my life. It has taken years for me to refortify my psyche, to find my feet, to find my voice again, my sense of self, my sense of being a whole human being. My hope with this podcast is that it encourages people to let go of that instinct to cancel and the resentment that drives it. Don't hate the haters so much that you become one yourself. Anyway, I have a responsibility to myself to learn more about other people's perspectives, not less. So on my podcast, I'm going to interview who I want to. This is The Vanity Project. And I also owe it to you, the listeners, to keep things interesting. So if any of you have recommendations for who you'd like me to sit down with in future episodes, please do reach out. I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me via my website, vanityvonglow.com, or via social media. Today's guest, however, will get started. It's Amy LeMay. Hi, 
I first watched Amy LeMay on my TV screens as a young person back in the 2000s. She used to feature as a talking head on some of those countdown shows that they would put on at Christmas in the new year. If I remember rightly, it was stuff like the top 100 musicals on Channel 5 or the top celebrity moments of 2004. And she would give her observations on pop music and favourite cultural moments. I actually ended up doing one of these shows myself a couple of years ago and became a talking head on the subject of Kylie Minogue, a domain in which I am an esteemed scholar. So dreams do come true. But while I was a teenager in Scotland uh, those years ago and Amy was on my TV screens from London, I had no idea that she was actually a hard grafting nightclub performer and a promoter famous for the legendary queer cabaret Ducky at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. So Ducky was one of the cornerstone nights here when I moved here 10 years ago and still runs to this day. I believe it started in the 90s um, a sort of must visit destination for people that want to watch a bit of challenging and exciting and interesting cabaret. They described that they put on highbrow performance in backstreet pubs and lowbrow performance in posh theatres, which I love. So after some 20 years as a community organiser in the nightlife, Amy LeMay took on a more formal role in local government. Here in London, the new mayor, uh, Sadiq Khan, in 2016, appointed her to the role of Night Czar. This was a role designed to safeguard and advocate for the capital's nighttime industries. So we're going to be talking about her work, the challenges and successes of the role, and what she has planned for London in the future, and particularly a focus on safety at night, because I know that that's something that is very important to Amy LeMay. So Amy LeMay, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Oh my gosh, after that build-up. <laughs> really, it, it was a lengthy intro. <laughs> it's brilliant to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me onto the podcast. Yeah, lovely to have you. Um, one of the things I think was great was that when you were first appointed in the role, sometimes when people get jobs like a night czar, they often it feels to me they're often as a, a, a civil servant, a stuffy type in a suit who comes into the position, but you do what I do. You know, you've been in clubs and actually getting night buses home and chatting to the people in the kebab shop. And you know how the whole nighttime culture works. Yeah, that, that I think is a really important um, bit of experience that I bring to the job that um, maybe somebody who was, uh, you, know, you know, maybe spent most of their life in a suit and would think that they've got good ideas for policy and how to run the nighttime. You know, I think starting a club night in Vauxhall in the mid 90s, uh, I, I often say I've seen everything I can see and lots of things I can't unsee. So effectively, <laughs> I've been on the front line of running LGBTQ plus events, spaces, clubs in some of the roughest parts of London for over 25 years. And that pretty much sharpens your senses about what works, what doesn't work, um, the things that are really important, who's, you know, and what needs to improve most importantly, um, because for me, I see a lot of inequality at night. You know, I know how hard people work at night, for example, and that's one of the things I'm determined to change is that, you know, those that work at night have the same amount of equality when it comes to pay and conditions um, and access 
to to goods and services that those that work during the day. You know, there's a big inequality in our city um, between day and night. And part of my role is to try and help address that. That's right. A lot of people who work at night will work in slightly lower paid. I mean, they're getting, you know, a lot of people, there's a lot of zero hour contracts. A lot of people really graft as well when they work in clubs and everything like that. And it's worrying that times are times as hard as they say, or they're about to get hard. Um, and uh, and I, I totally hear you that we want to make, we want the city to work for the people who live and work here. You know, we want it to, to be fair. Um, I think that one of the things that happened early on when you took on the role, uh, which was a great victory for a night czar, was the reopening of Fabric Nightclub. Yes. <laughs> um, which actually, I can't believe that was so long ago now, because I remember that if, you, if you'd asked me, I would have thought that was like two years ago, but it was actually like mm. seven years ago now. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah what was that I, like for you? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, I was appointed and then, you know, it was announced and everything. And my my kind of, um, I think I had about five minutes of being able to kind of like soak it all up and, 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 and sort of think, wow, you know, this is amazing. And then the mayor was like, and by the way, the first thing I want you to do is to reopen fabric. And I was like, are you serious? Like, this is it was such a complicated situation with fabric. Um, but again, you know, drawing on what, what you just said, Vanity, about um, how my experience in working in clubs, I was able to bring that to the table in City Hall. Mm -hmm. So all the work that I did around trying to save the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, you know, for like 20 years, we worked on various campaigns and I led those campaigns uh, to save venues. And, you know, you have to be able to get lots of people around the table that don't want to talk to each other. And how, mm -hmm. do you, how, how do you do that? It's not easy, but that's probably one of the biggest parts of my job is, you know, trying to, to you know, I mean, particularly with that, situation with fabric because the venue didn't want to speak to the police and the police didn't want to speak to the council and the council didn't want to speak to the venue and you know it was it was just a nightmare and it's not the only situation like this that has happened in London it is just one of the most high profile ones um and so I'm really pleased that we were able to play a role in in resolving that and that fabric is reopened <laughs> and that you know we've been able to do some really brilliant collaborations with fabric actually during lockdown i mean we, we've just been um funding some projects for them to do um a, a big electronic music night at the english national opera um so again like wow. taking taking that club culture and mixing it up um that's what i love so much so yeah <laughs> So when you were, the Royal Vauxhall Tavern is another sort of iconic venue here in London and has a real place in the heart of the LGBT community. I, I'm aware of the, the ongoing uh, attempt to redevelop that space. You know, I think at one point in the 90s, they wanted to knock it down and put up a Tesco. Yeah. Um, now, I love, a, I love a big supermarket, but, you know, I definitely don't want it to replace the RVT. And I suppose campaigns like the ones you were involved in are about making noise and showing that if you knock this down, the here are all the people who are going to be affected by that. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I'm really proud 
that in my role as Knights are, I've been able to help stem the fall in numbers of LGBTQ plus venues in London. We had a decade of decline um, from mm -hmm. 2006 to 2016. We lost 62% of our LGBTQ plus venues. And in the lead up to me becoming Knights are, I knew anecdotally because that's what we always talked about, you know, when I was out in pubs and clubs and meeting mm -hmm. with my friends in queer spaces, it's like another place is closed. Oh, and another place is closed. And have you heard this place is under threat? And it was like, it just seemed like every other week and another one of our precious community spaces was being lost. So I knew that when I was appointed Knights are, I needed to do something about it, but we needed to kind of get the data on it rather than it just be a, uh, you know, an anecdotal thing that we actually could understand how and why we were losing these spaces. So I co-commissioned um, a report from University College London, um, and they looked into the reasons why. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because the same reason that LGBTQ plus venues were closing is the same reason that grassroots live music venues were closing. But because we are a more vulnerable community, our spaces were lost at more than double the rate of grassroots live music venues. So it just shows you just kind of how precarious a lot of the, you know, the, the forward thinking and brave things that LGBTQ plus people do in, in London um, and how we're constantly pushing boundaries but how pushing those boundaries can also make us vulnerable in situations where we're depending on place and space in order to do them. So as a result of that um, finding, I knew that I had to do something to stem that flow of closures. So I set up the LGBTQ plus venues forum, and now it's a venues and promoters forum, because there was no there was no space for those people that were running venues to kind of share their knowledge, you know, share, share their problems and also try and find shared solutions. Previously, like queer venues in South London never talked to queer venues in East London, who didn't talk to West London, who didn't right. talk to North London. And I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> like there's so few of us yeah, left. Yeah. We actually need to come together and work as a community and stop seeing our seeing venues, seeing each other as competition, but rather part of a whole ecosystem for the LGBTQ yeah. plus community of performers, of bar workers, of cleaners, of like, you know, this is, these are places and spaces that sustain our community, not just economically, but socially. And so I'm really pleased that on the other side of the, cause we were also, I mean, pandemic, and I say the P word because we were convinced, like, I just thought we're gonna lose so many of these venues that we've managed to save because of the pandemic. We've actually come out the other side of the pandemic. We put a lot of money and a lot of resources into helping LGBTQ plus venues survive. And we have not lost one because of the pandemic. And actually we've seen five new ones open, which I'm so proud of. So it just goes to show that this kind of targeted support for our community can really pay up, pay dividends. Is the decline of spaces like this inevitable to some extent? You know, I'm thinking that people use 
I mean, we're hearing post-pandemic, you know, people might be moving out of the cities over the next 10 years. Mm. People are going to be able to work from home. We might lose that big metropolis feel. Also, for the past 15 years, if you want to flirt with a boy uh, or a girl, you can go on an app, a dating app, and, and, and you know, mm. have a hookup, go and have sex with a stranger. It's a lot of the need to be actually collected in a in a in the room together is gone now i know obviously there's other reasons why we go into going nights <laughs> out i mean i go on a night out to have a laugh that's my main yeah. thing and you can't have a laugh on an app in the same way yeah. at all yeah but that must contribute towards the, there must be something inevitable about the transformation of the city well this is interesting that you say that vanity because Part of the UCL report was really trying to dig deep into the reasons as to why we lost those venues. And overwhelmingly, the reasons are threefold. It's um, threats of development, uh, mm -hmm. rising rents, and rising yeah. business rates. It's those three yeah. things. And those three things are exactly the same reason why we lost you know, 35% of our grassroots live music venues. You know, it's yeah. also the reason why we lost 25% of our independent pubs in that same time frame. You know, so we're seeing, it's, I, I understand what you say, is it inevitable? It's actually not inevitable because we can do okay. things here from City Hall to make sure that those, you know, that those places and spaces are not seen as disposable because uh, somebody wants to, you know, build a three-star hotel you know and some things you know that, that's the nature of london things will always change and some change is good and some change maybe isn't so good but we have to make sure that it, it's a balance and that if you know one venue is being lost for a particular reason that it's being replaced this is exactly what we did um sadiq and i did in east london with the friend with the joiners arms and working alongside the council and friends of the joiners arms to make sure that i mean the joiners arms is you know it closed it's been sat empty for how long it's heartbreaking yeah and yeah you know as somebody who quite likes a sticky carpet at 4 a.m um you know <laughs> i really missed it and so um so we worked with the community group and the council and the developers to help the developers understand that you know they want to build a hotel but this is a really important community asset for us and by them just coming into the neighborhood and you know what could be seen as cashing in on uh you know the the forward thinking nature of our community of always pushing the boundaries and going into the places and spaces others yeah, don't the, want to the classic gentry <laughs> The classic yeah, gentrification exactly. cycle that takes place in cities. Exactly. And so, I mean, what? So just, just, uh, just I'll wrap that up. But I just wanted to say we were able to secure a meanwhile space for the Joiners Arms, um, and that built that uh, venue is going to be reprovided for in the new development with free rent and a full kit out and everything. And so it shows that it's wow. not inevitable, but it takes a lot of hard work to make sure that these things happen. It sounds like this is the sort of thing, there's a lot of a balancing act. You've got to bring together all of these different stakeholders. Um, does How much of that worked for you? Because I'd about you, you're the night czar, but what time do you go to bed? 
You have to work in the day and at night, right? Yeah. Well, I often joke to Sadiq. I was like, you said I was nights are. I thought I only had to work at night. <laughs> I was like, now I've got to work all yeah. day as well. Um, of course, because, you know, I was so used to just, you know, what it's like working at night. You're just like on a different, different schedule. And I've always worked at night my entire working life ever since I was a teenager. Um, you know, my dad has a 24 hour plumbing business and I used to work for him, as did every member of my family. And so we were just used to like if the phone rang at three in the morning, somebody had to answer it. And my dad yeah, was out pipes the door. Burst, a pipes burst. Yeah, exactly. And so it's kind of given that, you know, alongside my experience of running clubs, giving me a unique kind of insight into the the challenges that people um, face when when they work at night. Um, so, yeah. I find myself becoming quite, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm typically left-leaning, but I find myself going very left-leaning on the subject of rents and business rates for bars and clubs. Cause they're, I mean, they're the, they're the beating heart of a city to me. I know that I know there's other cultural centers, art, art galleries and everything like that, but my, you know, where, where people share a drink and share food and uh, share entertainment, that's where relationships mm. are really made. Um, one of one of my uh, friends who runs a business in Camden, his pet peeve is one of the late night levies that businesses that are open after I think eleven p.m. have to pay, and they still had to pay that levy even during uh, the pandemic uh, when they weren't open. Um, I mean, in an ideal world, would you like to have a magic wand where you could go around and sort of cut some of the tape? for mm. stuff like that, make things a bit easier for businesses or even rent controls. I mean, mm. I know they've tried that in Berlin and that's been very controversial, but these businesses that are having to pay, I mean, it's our drinks go up when the rents go up and that's what I'm worried about. Well, you make some really good points there. And first I'll say it was one of the very first things I did when the pandemic hit um, was write to the government to say, you need to, we need to create a situation where these businesses that are closed do not pay the late night levy. This is so, um, mm -hmm. this is completely and totally unfair. They were the first to close, they were the last to reopen, and they're responsible mm -hmm. legally for paying their late night levy for all of the time that they were closed. And yeah. I wrote to the government to ask them it would have required a small instrument of change and I got no response. And I got no response yeah. on a number of issues that I wrote to the government about. Um, and that also feeds into, I think, the attitude around business rates, you know, and this isn't just something that concerns people that are left-leaning, right-leaning, straight down the middle, or don't even care about politics. You know, businesses are really suffering post-pandemic. They were suffering yeah. before and they're suffering now because we talk about the cost of living crisis, which is affecting all of us individually, but we also have a cost of doing business crisis. Um, yeah, you know, of working. <laughs> yes, a pile Brexit on top of the pandemic. And we have a perfect storm where supply chain issues are just seem to be never ending. I mean, as I speak to you, we've got you know, a, a, a 25 mile queue of lorries trying to get over to the continent um, with, you know, night workers that don't even have toilet facilities, you know, which just mm. boggles the mind, you know, and I just think um, there's, there's an untold cost to all of this. And there's only so long, I think that 
businesses and individuals can be pushed when it comes to this. So I think we need Belt and Brace's total reform of business rates. We need total reform of uh, late night levy um, and you know, other areas of, of business regulation that really needs to be looked at, making it easier for businesses to, I don't know, flip between say, you know, a uh, use class, for example, um, so that you could, I don't know, maybe have it as a bar at night, but then something else during the day, you know, so that these mm. become flexible spaces that, that are just a bit more meeting people's needs. You know, sometimes I go around various high streets in London and everything shuts up at 5 p.m. I just think nobody's on that schedule yeah. anymore. <laughs> Nine to yeah. five was dead before the pandemic hit. And now, the, now on the other side of it, it is definitely over. I saw on your Twitter that you were in, uh, well, here's an alliteration. I saw on Twitter that you were in Twickenham uh, the other day and enjoying some of that al fresco they've got tables and and stuff outside you know glass mm. of wine there's a nice little yeah. record store just in in that little there. street yeah. there um and like london has all of these almost villages you know greenwich is gorgeous if you go down there i love islington i think it's lovely out open space what i mean do you have a favorite part of london oh gosh that's like are you allowed saying, to have a favorite part that's like that's like saying who's your favorite child i mean i don't have a child i don't have children but i can imagine it must be difficult um or at least you do have one but you're not really technically allowed to say <laughs> yeah but, but listen i live in the borough of camden and yeah. i'm i served as the mayoress of camden uh just over a decade ago I did that for a year uh, and spent uh the year highlighting the amazing music heritage um and yeah. vibrant music scene in the borough um and so i think camden will always have a special place in my heart just because I know I know all the all the pubs to go to in the back streets and yeah you know, it's, it's it's a great community feel as well where I live so yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm blessed I, um, to have a good kind of local local places and spaces to go out I'm a Camden girl too and I've lived here on and off I'm, I live in Camden now I've lived in Camden on and off for the 10 years I've been in London so I definitely uh, I like to go to other places, but like Camden's where I always seem to gravitate to live in. And for the reasons you say, actually, there is this, you get, you get a lot of that sort of grit of the city, um, but you're not quite in the, in the absolute throng of things. And I love being so close to Soho because that's where most of my shows are. You know, it's really easy for me. Yeah, I agree. Well, I say, well, actually, <laughs> I tell you something, I say it's easy for me. <laughs> One thing I wanted to talk to you about is I know that you've got your women's safety plan and that's a big priority project for the coming, uh, well, I suppose for the coming year, into, year or two. Um, and one of the aspects of that that I, I have uh, questions around are, are taxis here in London. But first, I think if you could introduce for us what the work is that you've been doing and also mm. exporting to other cities, because it's been mm. something you've been doing for a while now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so... I think you're referring to the Women's Night Safety Charter, which is something. That's um, the one. Yeah, yeah. I'm. It's something I'm really proud that the mayor and I have been able to do. So, look, when I was first appointed Night Czar, we did like some polling with Londoners to say, like, to find out what their top priorities were at night, and overwhelmingly, the number one thing was women's safety at night. 
And this was like back mm-hmm. in 2016. I mean, actually, I didn't need a poll probably to tell me that women's safety at night was important, being a woman who has always worked at night. Um, but it's always good to have that kind of like, you know, oh, yes, the Londoners data. are Londoners are feeling exactly the same way that I am and have that data to back up our policy decisions and everything, which is really important for us. Um, so, uh, so I set about doing some consultation work with uh, nighttime workers and different organizations working working around ending violence against women and girls um, to try and create something that was like a piece of policy, which most people don't care about, but that could actually be lifted out of a policy book, a policy document and be implemented by businesses, by pubs, by clubs, by any organization or business that runs at night. Um, So we wanted to make it quite light touch um, and easy. And so the nights, you know, the Women's Night Safety Charter was born. And now we have over, gosh, I think we're about 800 organizations and businesses that are signed up to our series of seven pledges, which uh, are sort of broadly grouped around, um, you know, training your employees um, to to be able to identify and take reports seriously, Um, communication. Um, so telling customers that this is something that is important to you and that you take seriously. Um, and then also some, uh, one around designing your, your space so that it feels safer for women. Um, and I also just have to say at this point, you know, trans women are women. And so it is a fully inclusive policy um, for everyone who identifies as a woman. Um, So that sometimes comes up and I just, sometimes you forget it when you kind of take it for granted that trans women are women, not not everyone feels that way, but this is an absolutely fully inclusive policy. Um, And so, so yeah, and so now we we've got other cities around the world that are adopting it. Um, Cardiff is looking at taking it on. Uh, Oh, I love Cardiff. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's now in Cardiff. Have it's, you been to Mary's? Su- yeah, of course. And it's a, a surprisingly like, I don't know why I'm surprised, but I'm from Glasgow. So I'm allowed to talk about cities that you had bad reputations. So like Glasgow used to be really rough, um, but it's now like, you know, in the f- 15 years ago, I moved to Glasgow and I, I love it. And it's this great vibrant city and Cardiff's been regenerated as well in the city centre. So it's got this like open European city feel to it. And people are just... You know, it's the Celts. They're so friendly. I love they them. Are. <laughs> they are very friendly. <laughs> At this point in the interview, there was a technical problem and we lost the introduction to this next section where I asked Amy what it takes to drive real change in nightlife. Yeah, it, it takes sometimes really shocking and horrific circumstances to drive change. You know, I think of the murders of Sabine and Nessa uh, and Biba Henry and her sister, um, you know, and, and of course, Sarah Everard. Um, and, you know, the, I think we've reached a tipping point. Um, and so we really need everybody to step up. And it shouldn't be women that are doing all of this work. We really need men to play their part in this. Um, and, you know, when I go around and, and speak to people about the work we do at the Women's Night Safety Charter, I always say that men are our biggest allies in this. 
You know, we yeah. need men to be able to stand up, to speak up. I mean, I don't know if you saw the mayor's recent campaign, Have a Word, you know, which is really- I did, kind yeah, of, yeah. Yeah, challenging which, men. Which I, I thought of, was quite you know, strong. Yeah, you know, challenging- I, I like that. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, you go, I'm interrupting. <laughs> no, 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 it's just about, you know, challenging men around their behavior. Cause I think for too long, women have felt like we had to do all the heavy lifting with this when actually, you know, we're the victims of this, not not the perpetrators. Mm -hmm. I think there's a great um, there's a great approach in case encased in what you've just said that you know a strong. I always think, well, here I sit on the sidelines as a drag queen. I always think like a strong feminism understands the allyship of uh, of men in the cause, and also I was talking on this podcast with Peter Tatchell, who I'm a big admirer of um, and have been, you know, since I was a teenager and, and read about all of his activism. And he says that what we need to do is make converts and allies of the people who would who would oppose us with our projects, with our aims. Um, and there's that sense of like conciliation. So it makes sense to me. You want to get men on board for women's safety. Um, uh, we all want everyone to be safer at night. And you know yourself, like working in the you know, we've all had a ropey night bus journey home, haven't we? Um, and 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 things can get a little intimidating sometimes. So I was in Soho not too long ago. Well, I'm in Soho all the time. And we do have a taxi shortage at the moment in London. There's a driver shortage. And um, I think a, a, a freedom of information request to the congestion zone cameras, whoever it is that runs them, found that there were like 25% less taxis in the central London area. So obviously at times of peak, that means there just aren't cabs. And this, this affects me four nights a week. Like I, I'm stuck for a couple of hours in Soho in some ridiculous dress or something. And, um, and you know, I'm quite street, I'm pretty streetwise. As I say, I, you know, grew up in Glasgow and used to walk around and drag to my gigs there. I'm not easily intimidated, but I was walking through Camden and, and that thing happened where a guy in a car is driving along next to you shouting out for you to get in and now this happens to women all the time um and you know when you're able to just flag down a cab or hop on a convenient night bus um that's often your escape hatch from those situations i know some people think of taxis as being luxury items but actually for people who work at night especially people who work in the nighttime economy um, they are, for a lot of people, actually how you get from A to B. It's just how you travel. So I wonder if transport is going to be a big part of safety for people who work at mm. night going forward. Yeah, those are all really good points. And I'm sorry you had to experience that. But yeah, you're right to highlight. This oh, Amy, I was I was very tempted to get in that car, let me tell you, for a free ride home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, for women, I don't think that we would ever you know entertain that and it's really no <laughs> you know we have to we have to make really tough decisions a lot of the time around how how we get home how we plan our nights out and so um i'm really happy that night tube is coming back fully um so we just announced that the jubilee line is coming back from may and we've got the piccadilly and the northern that'll be coming back um in the summer. And so that will resume the kind of full service night tube um, and night overground, which I'm really pleased about. Um, 
you know, this is so important for people, not just people going out and enjoying themselves, but people that are working to get to and from, you know, we just take it for granted since it's been in, you know, since it was brought in in 2016, that we've got a mm-hmm. night tube at the weekend. So, you know, and then we've got a hundred different night bus routes across London. But I think that you have raised um, something really important around the shortage of taxi drivers. I recently had a chat with a taxi driver around this very issue. And he was saying, yeah. you know, during the pandemic, it was so hard because of course, taxi drivers most of them were self-employed and, yeah. you know, didn't have that that kind of financial cushion. So some who were maybe older and were planning to retire in the next few they years, just actually, in, yeah. they, they, they took early retirement um, and it wasn't necessarily what they were planning to do, but kind of out of necessity, it's what they did. And so- And some people, some people I think to some extent as well, we're finding that now there are more delivery jobs, so still driving jobs, for delivery or whatever, where you don't actually have to have a drunk drag queen in the back of your taxi at four in the morning. And so some drivers actually changed, changed, still driving, but changed up the way that they're doing their work. Um, And so there's all of these different factors. I mean, I I speak to every single driver about it because I'm very nosy and I'll sit and gas away on my trip into town and find out I'm I'm doing my own little survey. But it would be great to have some more solid data about that because we want to attract people back to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we also know that like a whole swathes of. Uh, sort of nighttime, that traditional nighttime economy, you know, and that ecosystem of jobs, uh, it's it's changed dramatically in the last few years. So even finding enough bar staff is very difficult. Finding enough taxi drivers, also um, uh, SIA licensed security, door security is very difficult at the moment. Um, A lot of those workers Mm -hmm. we found have, you know, who were working, uh, doors on nightclubs went over the pandemic to say work in hospitals or work in Sainsbury's and they realized mm-hmm. that again they didn't have to deal with you know drunk drag queens <laughs> not yeah. putting it all on we drunk drag menace. queens I love, <laughs> I love a drunk drag queen but you know what I mean it's like you know I use that as an example just of the challenges of working at night because if you you know if performers are working at night and those people that are trying to keep us safe working at night you know, and we're not all kind of, you know, have the same kind of in-work support that we need. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> you me- you mentioned the night tube. Um, I always feel like a bit of an alien because I actually have always lived on a well-connected bus route. Well, in Camden, we are on a good bus route, right? Yeah, the number yeah. 29 is the best bus in London. Um, uh, but... Uh, or indeed I, I'll take taxis, but I don't, so I never get the night tube, but I know that women often find that that's the safer way. It feels safer because you feel like you, there's security cameras, you're kind of more self-contained. Randoms can't just come on, do crimes and get off and disappear into the night in the same way. Um, but obviously there have been some holdups with the night tube becoming fully reopened again. It's great news that the Jubilee line is, is getting back on that program now. Um, Obviously, there were some issues with strikes. I know that the unions, uh, I mean, typically I support union action. Um, it's one of those difficult ones, though, where if the if the drivers strike, um, then it's women's safety at night with regards to night tube that takes the hit. Now, here's a controversial proposal, but wouldn't the safest thing for women be to fully automate the London Underground and replace all the drivers with security personnel? 
I don't think the unions would like that at all. <laughs> I don't think they would. <laughs> I, I think I think I think that um, I think they would. Uh, yeah, I think women probably find that a bit creepy um, and the unions wouldn't support it. And we actually need to support all of the you know tube drivers and, and TFL staff that have worked so hard in the past couple of years to kind of keep the city moving as much as they possibly could during the pandemic. Um, so your yeah. eyebrows raised right off your head when I said that. So <laughs> it was, it was it's a strong an, reaction it, there. It's 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 a new one for me, Vanity. I've never heard that proposal before, but hey, you know, I'm like, I like to hear new ideas, but not sure whether that one's gonna fly. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. So my friend Ali, who is uh, the boss at the Clapham Grand, he was showing me some pictures of um, Andrew Logan's Miss Universe drag competition from 1996, which was well before my time here um, as a performer. So first up, Ali says that you must come back to the Grand and have a night out down there. Um, so he'll sort you out with that if ever you're down in the Clapham way. Uh, <laughs> um, but do you miss those? Do you miss those nights out? Like there was a pre-internet era a pre-smartphone era that I, I slightly remember, but there must have been an unselfconsciousness to nights out back then. That's a really, really interesting question. Um, so yeah, I was the contestant in Andrew Logan's Alternative Miss World twice. Um, I think there's some footage that does exist uh, that popped up in like a documentary or something. There must be a couple of photos somewhere, but you're right. There was a, a bit of there was a bit of uh, a sense of freedom, a sense of it didn't matter that we weren't documenting everything constantly. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember that real change, you know, when when we thought, oh, maybe we should start like filming some of these performances. And we had a really big debate about it, about like, no, it's got to be in the moment. You know, you've got to be here. You've got to be in the room, you know, and yeah. I think that that you know, that was like hap that, that those kinds of discussions were happening in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And look where we are now. It's like, you know, you can live stream shows all over the world. It's like one of my NHD. lifelines. Yeah. And one of my lifelines during lockdown was the Dalston Superstore, you know, like virtual club nights. I was like, you know, my girlfriend and I we were like, we just need to see other queer people like on the screen acting yeah. crazy you know yeah. <laughs> like, to make us feel alive again <laughs> and so um 
you know, so it's, it's a, it's a, again, we're going back to this thing about it being a balance. Um, I don't know whether it was better or worse. I think uh, one thing that has definitely changed that's a lot better, it, going back to that women's safety issue is just um, a lot of very bad behavior went on that would just not be tolerated now. Mm, um, yeah. And I think it's much better for women, even, you know, for lesbians, you know, I'll be honest with you, Vanity, like a lot of gay men thought they could touch me and do all sorts of mm -hmm. things to me because they were gay and I was a lesbian. And I was like, you know, it doesn't matter. Actually, this is my body, you know? I remember <laughs> that. I, I, I went, I was 17 in 2006. That's when I went to university and that's when I first went clubbing. And I, when I look back, I'm like, I, there was a certain persona of gay man who was like that, who doesn't seem to exist in the same way now. Like, I don't see, I don't see that type of, there used to be a thing about grabbing women's boobs that some gay men would do as a sort of, they, they would see it as a signifier of that, that, oh, we're all friends, us and the girls, so we can do this. Um, and I dare say that sometimes that amongst them and their female friends, they can, but you can't assume that you can do that to a random person in a pub and that's not acceptable. And I don't think, I think there's been progress towards people mm. second guessing their behavior about stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So I do think it's generally like a much better place for women to go out, you know, at night. Um, and I think more and more women are having the confidence to kind of say, uh, no, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. and we've yeah. got policies in place to kind of deal with this kind of behavior and it just won't be tolerated. So, yeah. There's a night, um, I, I hope our listeners are, keep, I know they won't, some people won't, will be listening who aren't from London who don't know some of these clubs. So there's a, a summer legendary that we've discussed like Fabric and RVT, but more recently there's a club night Crossbreed, which is a fetish, queer, polyamorous club night. So you're gonna, if you go to Crossbreed, there is kind of a dress code. It's a kink night. People will be in bondage gear and, and exciting looks. Um, and also they filter for entry, so you're not going to wander up by mistake and go in and, and see things you can't unsee uh, and, 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 and be upset about that. But I know that Crossbreed are, they've had some issues with the Tower Hamlets Council. So obviously the local council um, don't necessarily want a fetish night on their doorstep. There's probably some, ups, some kind of old fashioned reasons for why that is about nudity, partial nudity, stuff like that. Um, and I know that uh, the response of Crossbead, which is a really consent oriented night because any kink night worth its salt and any kink night that I would ever want to be associated with uh, to, as a performer or anything like that, consent is absolutely prime. So uh, just I'm saying that for people that might not realize that the people who understand consent the best are actually the, the kinksters um, because that's the basis of it all. Um, so they did a letter writing or an email writing campaign where they sent loads of emails to the Tower Hamlets Council describing the outfits they would be wearing at Crossbreed and asking if these individual outfits were acceptable. So just a bit of being a bit of an inbox nuisance. But I think that they said that they sent a lot of them to you as well, because obviously as nights are, there might be a, a role for you in mediating that. So how is that type of fracas resolved? Because you've got two different groups there 
both got different aims and mm. you know we well, want an outcome yeah. that pleases everyone yeah I mean no pun intended I, I'd like to strip it back <laughs> to to hey. kind of <laughs> to kind of like you know the essentials which is what is the venue they're operating in mm -hmm. does the venue have the right license for the kind of night that they're running and mm -hmm. uh and then if they do then they have absolutely every right to be operating in that venue um you know yeah. as long as they're adhering to you know all the kind of you know, this, look we're talking about some of the most regulated um industries nighttime yeah. industries and, and and club land is some of the most regulated spaces in the entire country okay and so this is where things like licensing become really important so you'll have some places have conditions on their license but you know a lot yeah. of promoters you know and i speak as a you know former promoter myself like you know you don't necessarily go and have a chat with the venue owner and say so what are the conditions on your license like that's mm -hmm. you know it's quite um detailed um and so I think sometimes some promoters can come a cropper because maybe there is isn't as much clarity as there needs to be when they're you yeah. know maybe signing up to do a night at a particular venue. And so I think it's incumbent upon the venue owner and operator to be clear with a promoter saying, right, this is, you know, these are our operating hours. This is, you know, we're upholding the four pillars of licensing, um, you know, when you're coming in to, you know, run a, run a night in our venue, um, this is what, these are the rules that we have to adhere to, so it's the rules that you have to adhere to, and either that works for a promoter or it doesn't, and there are loads of venues that do have suitable uh, licenses for places and spaces you know and, and nights like crossbreed and i mean they're you know torture guard i mean there's you know there are dozens of these kinds of nights that are long-standing long-running well-established well-loved um and very well run that you know that should be able to run um and so i'm always happy to you know have a more in-depth conversation with any promoter or any venue that wants to kind of untangle anything like that um but it, it you know I, i'm really clear that london needs the diversity of our life at night in order to remain mm -hmm. an international global yeah. city and that is part and parcel of our diversity and some people might, yeah. might not like it but then don't go Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you, oh. That's, that's <laughs> you know, my favorite that? thing in response, in response to any of these cultural, you know, cultural questions around people getting annoyed about books or people getting annoyed about this and that. And I'm like, look, not everything's for you. <laughs> if you yeah. don't want to go, don't go. Yeah, if you don't want to yeah. read it, don't read it. Yeah, we just have to make sure that those promoters are in spaces that are suitable for what they the kind of night they want to put on that it's a safe environment that you know that everybody's you know going to be looked after and then you should just be able to get on with it yeah i will just uh, throw in the disclaimer that the tower hamlets council have said they said that club verboten um nights uh, i think that's, that's similar to crossbreed 
hosted in it's a residential area so they've got a few other beefs with that the nudity part mm. i've, I've spoke i've spoken so i've not spoken with crossbury but i've spoken with club verboten about this very issue um yeah. and it was an issue that you know that i highlighted earlier around the license i mean i'm getting into the weeds here but the license for the venue did not actually allow mm. for any nudity um on site and obviously with something like Club for Button or any kind of kink night, you know, you want to be able to have a the kind of atmosphere where you're not hindered by that. Um, and so yeah. I just think that they weren't necessarily in the right venue for the right kind of night they wanted to run. So I'm actually yeah. working with Club for Button at the moment to, to help them find the right kind of venue so that their night can just get on doing what they do well and so everybody can have a good time. Is it ever the case that, because I know like in Hackney, for example, um, the Hackney Council has a new decree or whatever they would call it, um, that any new clubs opening or any new venues opening won't be able to open after 11. So it's one thing to keep the venues that we have or to try and support the club nights that exist. But if we can't see growth in the nighttime industry in terms of nightclubs, I mean, it's it's fantastic. It sounds like mayor, uh, the mayors, the mayor and yourself are really keen to keep London a vibrant world city. But if each council doesn't want it in their own backyard, you know, what what can yeah. be done? Yeah. Well, this is a very interesting question because, you know, licensing is crucial to mm. whether nightlife thrives or dies. However. Yeah. At City Hall, we have no oversight of licensing. Licensing yeah. goes from central government, they make the laws, and local authorities are the ones that are implementing it. So it doesn't kind of have a, you know, a, a stop off point at City Hall, as it were. Um, yeah. So we are not able to have any kind of direct influence on licensing policy. Um, all of that kind of work that we do is around advocacy, best practice, making sure that we keep, you know, good relationships going with councils, trying to unknot problems where we can, getting people around the table. You know, it's, um, it's, uh, it's really interesting work, but it, it can be tricky at times. I'll be totally honest with you because I think the policy that you're referring to at the moment um, around its cumulative impact zones. So uh, some councils call them things that are slightly different, um, but effectively it's like saying, we've got enough licensed premises in this particular area and we're not going to let any more stay openly. And I think that the pandemic has totally blown all of this out of the water because these are policy decisions, going back to the importance of data, these are policy decisions that are meant to be based on data and data collected on a yearly basis, yeah? So if you look at the data for the last year, it will show that we had no nighttime activity at all which technically should mean that cumulative impact zones should be abolished. Right. That's a bit of a controversial view for some, yeah. 
I'm just putting it out there. That is, you know, that is how some might interpret it. However, mm. local authorities are really worried because they think, oh, if we, you know, let uh, let go of a little bit of control, that things can get mm -hmm. out of hand. I think that it, it can be a double-edged sword with this because you can be protecting venues uh, that already have those late licenses that maybe aren't put very well run. You know, maybe we need to yeah. let some fresh new blood in. Maybe we need to allow people with new and innovative ideas to come in and and to test the market and to and to push push boundaries. That's what London is all about. Um, mm -hmm. So we're currently my um, my office has just commissioned some research looking into licensing best practice and some. Um, some recommendations to take forward for myself, for the mayor, for local authorities, and also for central government, because we need overhaul of licensing laws as well. They've not been over, they've not been looked at since 2003. Um, it seems like a lifetime ago. So um, there's a lot of work that yeah. needs to be done on this. Yeah. So Amy, my final question for you, you are a uh an international lady, uh, you grew up in the States and are, are Brit now, an honorary Brit, uh, living here for most of your life. Um, but I know that Ducky has been all around the world to Berlin and to Tokyo. And so I wonder which world cities should London be emulating at night? Mm, that's a really good question. Yeah, and I'm actually like, I'm a proper Brit now. I've got my passport and everything. Um, so uh, even though my, my <laughs> my accent always gives me away um but um <laughs> <laughs> you know uh so uh, i think we've got a lot to learn from in other international cities about how they've been dealing with the pandemic um but i will say that our city that london really does lead the way when we're looking at things that happen at night yeah, and taking a holistic approach to this, because look, I've got lots of um, uh, sort of people doing similar roles in other jobs around the world. So there's an, uh, a nightmare in New York. There's, um, you know, we've got, there's one in Paris, Bogota, Berlin, Amsterdam, um, Sydney, Philadelphia is going to have one soon. Um, so, you know, this is a growing area of policy and leadership. But my approach here in London has been one that is, uh, how can I describe it? It's, well, it's like a 360 degree view of London at night. So while bars, pubs and clubs are an important part of our life at night, it's not everything. And we have 1.6 yeah. million people that are regularly working at night in London. And most of those people are working for the National Health Service and in social care. And it isn't until you get third down the list that you get to the bits that we've been talking about mostly today. Yeah. Um, you know, bars, pubs, clubs, entertainment, culture, leisure, that kind of stuff. And so when you put it in, in perspective like that, if we're not approaching our city at night in a ho truly holistic way, and if I'm not working across every single area of policy here at City Hall, from transport to policing and crime, to the environment, to economic development, 
to regeneration um, and beyond, then I'm not doing my job properly because London at night is, as we know, uh, a whole nother city is just happening in the dark and people need to open their eyes and we need to shine a light on all of the great stuff that does happen in our city at night. So that's, uh, that's what I'm dedicated to doing. Uh, yeah. Well, I can tell that like myself, you love London very much. Um, and I'm so glad that you've come on today. So thank you for answering my questions and for sharing your perspective. And I wish you well in your continued uh, work as the Knights are, which is, by the way, a fabulous job title. <laughs> thank you so much, Vanity. It's been brilliant chatting. Well, Vanity, lovely to uh, eavesdrop on your conversation with the Knights are, Miss Amy LeMay. Um, I was just thinking that is such a fabulous title. Uh, if you could be a star of anything, what would you be? Well, Lady Lloyd, I am not entirely sure. What would I be the czar of? Um, I think, you would be the be czar of poppers. The czar of poppers and... Uh, you would be the czar of Eurovision. Yes, I would be the czar of Eurovision. You're right. That would be absolutely fantastic. But Almost. I'm not sure that I have my niche, just maybe being the czar of being a, a little bit of a cow. Wow, we've established I'm not qualified to be the czar of anything. Well, anything. I'll tell you what, I am the czar of my own podcast, of which this segment is Queen's Corner. And that's where we sit down with one of my drag queen or nightlife pals. Today, it's the lovely Lady Lloyd. And I thought she'd be a perfect person to chat to because um, we've seen so many venues close, even the 10 years I've lived here. Um, I mean, think of the Black Cap, Madame Jojo's. I used to do the Green Carnation. There, there was that Man Bar mm -hmm. CXR, Molly Moggs. Well, um, where else? I mean, it's crazy. Well, well, um, and of course, everywhere that Bombshell has ever, ever, ever hosted. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We did used Your to say Bombshell closes yeah, places down. Closes places down. And when we moved to the Q Bar, which has obviously been there, I think, fourteen years now. We said, well, if we close the Q bar down, then we know it's us. <laughs> yeah. We know it's you'd have to really, You'd have to really fuck things up to shut the Q bar down, I think. I think Q bar is just like such a mainstay now, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Do you remember the reason one of them closed down was because one of the drag queens did a shit on the dance floor? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Wasn't well, that Club think... 49? Yeah, well, actually, I don't think that's And to down. this day, oh, we've never me. identified, <laughs> have we ever identified the culprit? I think it was Tasty Jim. <laughs> God bless her. At her age, she doesn't even know if it was her. Um, it's funny, like Soho, when I moved here, I found that all the venues in London are quite small because like real estate is you know, it's more expensive. Mm, you get less right. square footage, especially in Soho. They're all just converted townhouses. Mm. Um, and you, you were saying you were saying recently that it feels like we just are in smaller venues more often. Like, where mm. are the where are the big super clubs? Yeah, I think we had like most of them shut down. And um, I guess for our sort of um, our sort of generation, the sort of places where me and you like to go, it was all if you wanted somewhere big and pounding and pumping you go to Vauxhall whereas now you know half the strip has gone yeah uh, you know I used to into... DJ in Vauxhall you know because there would be a room for like the Vauxhall pumping and also a, a pop room for people that like that because there was that space that you could have uh, area you know um which was split into two because it was that big 
uh, now you get shuffled under a tiny little arch and, and that's your lot. I mean, have you seen a dark room? Well, you don't a see a dark room, room do you? <laughs> you feel a dark room. You feel a dark room, but I mean, those, those, those clubs where you could go from room to room don't really exist anymore. Well, you know, it was a shame that XXL closed as well. Mm -hmm. And before my time, there was trade up in Farringdon. And I, I wish now that I live yeah. where I live. I'm like, God, it'd be so good to have a big club just down the mm. road in Farringdon. Yeah, you know, be, I, like, guess, so I guess handy. you still have the egg. The egg is amazing, that, that's but true. I'm banned. Yeah, I'm banned from what the did egg. You do? What did you do to get banned from the egg? Did you uh, hatch? I, I kicked somebody in the cock. <laughs> oh, well, that'll do it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It was have hard. You been kicked out? Have you been kicked out or banned from many clubs? No, that's the only one. That's the only one. Yeah, I, I don't fact, think I've ever during, been banned. No, even during my real sort of uh, wild, wild years, I think I always got away with anything that I uh, got up to. Um, if you could bring back one club that is now gone, this is so London, easy. what would you bring back? This is so easy, the ghetto. I knew you were going to say the ghetto. Mm -hmm. I, 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 you just anytime you talk about it, you go all nostalgic. <laughs> I just cannot, I cannot ever get over how good it was and how nothing's been like it since. It's really, really bizarre to explain if you weren't there. I don't know. I guess it's you know, where, like where was it? It was where Crossrail is being built for the last ten Near years. Near JY. Yeah, so where JY Late was, it was next door to that. Wow. And it was the reason why it was so much better is it was down the stairs. <laughs> you know, a yeah, club is good a if you have to go down. Yeah, like East Block. Remember that? That was great too. Um, so yeah, yeah, you know, it was really nice to hear that. Um, you know, we really are. It does seem like we've gone through that moment where everything was shutting down all at once. I mean, it settled down a bit now, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, there really was two years where it was like, fuck. Okay, we can't go there. We can't go there. We can't go there. Where are we going? G-A-Y late. Well, you know, how sad are we? <laughs> well, that's funny as well, because G-A-Y late, because we used to go there on a Sunday night, you would mm. be DJing at Co. I was doing my shows at the Phoenix. And it mm. was actually the only place only to place. go on a Sunday. Yeah. And and when you think about it, that is quite crazy because Sunday mm -hmm. nights on gay scenes in every other city, a Sunday night's a good night. It used mm. to be that um, all the hairdressing salons had a Monday off because yes. they cut hair on a Sunday. So all the gays being hairdressers would go out <laughs> on a Sunday night. And like, that's why Sundays were always good. Mm. It's crazy that that was the only place. <laughs> it's literally, and we went there every Sunday for like I know. years. Filling up the pockets of Jeremy Joseph. I mean, rather the money in my pocket than his, I have to say. If I could bring back a uh, club from London Times. Don't Do you know say it, really... don't say it. What? <laughs> I thought he was going to say Tranny Shack. <laughs> no, I would bring back um, the Den. Oh, uh, I, I just like, the I oh, like yes, the venue where Popstars was. And before that- I like that thing. walkway. Because mm -hmm. I think a thing that makes a, a nightclub a cool space is I don't like just a box room in a basement. I like mm. there to be levels and yeah. corners and little places that you can, it makes it a bit interesting. And, you know, mm -hmm. one night you'll be sat chatting away and flirting and having a kiss with some boy. And then if you've got walkways, you can look down and see everyone dancing. Just stuff that makes yeah. it kind of more like, like a fun fair. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Well, you, if you if you want that, you can always uh, hire Candy Hills to walk around. Well, that's true indeed. That or is a high delicious um, performance. What did you reckon of Amy LeMay? I think she's got a pretty tough job, if I'm honest, because I think she gets a lot of criticism mm -hmm. from our industry. I think she does. And I think it was interesting at the end, obviously, she wanted to kind of put that in there. I didn't realise that she deals with all this other stuff as well. Of course, we're so, uh, <laughs> so pig-headed. All we think about is, oh, the nights are. That means she's rocking around in nightclubs and down ducky, yeah. uh, you know, having a vodka soda or whatever. Um, well, of course, it's not. There is a whole nighttime economy that, you know, services uh, everybody, including me and you, you know, when we've had those incidents and uh, ended up carted off to uh, university hospital. And uh, she, has to deal, she has to deal with all these people as well. I really, I didn't, I didn't really think twice about that. So I think it's a really tough job. Yeah, I see a lot of the sort of she does nothing uh, tweets and things like that, you know, because of course, a lot of stuff did go to shit in the nightclub uh, industry. And uh, it's a face to put the blame on. I think the thing that stood out the most of everything she said I was just getting a picture through the through the chat and then when when I said to her like at the end of the day if like business rates and rents are 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 this big problem and and the mayor wants the city to be open but the boroughs have their own ideas about not wanting things in their backyard and then she kind of said like but there's stuff we don't have influence over you know she she isn't all powerful mm -hmm. it, it's I think it's a good role it's a, it's a good it's good the role exists but also we have to limit our expectations on what she yeah. can actually do in the role. It sounds like what we, what we need is a different government that's going to prioritise different things. You would think that with the Brexit, um, uh, a government that's a pro-Brexit government, they would want to cut some of the red tape to make it easier for businesses to be businesses and to yeah. capitalise on that. Well, and of course, that uh, the things that we're angry about and... Uh, only of interest to us you know other people don't care for nightclubs existing in fact they'd prefer it wouldn't because you know there's smoke machines and there's drag queens on microphones and stuff you know everywhere I work has problems with um, residents with sound yeah you know. everywhere. You know, everywhere I don't play pumping music I play Shakira Shakira and uh, you know I have to really watch where the bass is at because it's very easy mm -hmm. to up, to upset residents. So, um, yeah. you know, it's that thing that it's all important if it's important to you. Otherwise, you know, you don't care. So she has a lot of things to think about, you know. My pet peeve. You have to keep everybody happy. Yeah, fuck, fuck that. I mean, the, honestly, the worst thing is when somebody moves above a nightclub <laughs> that's been there for 30 years, moves in, you know, buys a nice £2 million mm -hmm. apartment here in London, and then all they do is complain to the council about the noise. And it's like, yeah. you moved above bloody, you know, barcode. What did you think was going to happen? You moved it. And it's not even the noise. It's like, well, it is the noise, but it's also the noise of the punters in the street having a fag, yeah. um, standing around at the end waiting for cabs. But mm -hmm. I'm sorry, that's city living. It <laughs> is. It is absolutely stupid. Well, we've put the worlds to rights today. I think you're going to be back on a future episode in this season, I think. Okay. I have one in mind for you. Um, and we'll have a good old chin wag then again. So thank you, Lady Lloyd. Thank you.
My pleasure. Goodbye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.